0: Hello, and welcome to the Leap of Faith, and a happy new lunar year to our listeners who may celebrate the Spring Festival at home or abroad. 2021 is the year of the ox, and after all the turbulence of the year of the rat, a change is, according to those in the know, most welcome. People born in the Year of the Ox are reliable, robust, fair, patient, kind, organised, calm and trustworthy. Maybe a quiet, stable, boring Year of the Ox is precisely what we need. Later, I'll talk with Suni de who moved here from Korea 40 years ago, about how she and her family are celebrating the new lunar year. Later too, we'll join Sister Patricia Murray in Rome. She's Executive Secretary of the Women's International Union of Superiors General and we'll hear her perspective on the changing role for women in the Roman Catholic Church. But first, Coping International is an organisation formed primarily to support the children of the ordained, priests, brothers and nuns. It also helps the mothers and fathers in these rarely spoken about relationships. The founder of Coping International is Vincent Doyle, a psychotherapist and himself the son of a Catholic priest. His recently published book, Our Fathers, a Phenomenon of Children of Catholic Priests and Religious, places the issue under the microscope of sociology, psychology and theology. Vincent Doyle joins me now from his home in County Roscommon. Vincent, before we we talk about your own specific story, I'd I'd like if you would please put this in in a context for us, because we tend to think of the story of children of the ordained as being somewhat historical. Would you say it
1: isn't? No. One of our clients, she's due in three months. The father of her child has another child. And then across America, in the, then in places like the Philippines, we have uh, we, as I said, we have a seven-year-old. One of our clients, uh, the mother we speak to, her child is seven. And then we have another lady in the Congo who she has three boys under fourteen. Uh, so yeah, I could go on. It's it's by it's by all means. The Vatican themselves has admitted this is the one issue in the Catholic Church. And I hate using the word scandal because it it kind of associates the word ch- a child with a scandal. A child is never a scandal, but this is the one issue presenting, shall we say, in the Catholic Church. That you can't stop, you'll never stop it. You you, you know, when you look at things like sexual abuse and illegal adoptions and all of these terrible things, in theory, in hypothetical, you you can you can stop these things with safeguarding, etc. But you'll never stop men fathering children. Never would one want to. Vincent, you mentioned in your answer there clients. Clients of whom? Clients of Coping International are children of priests across the world, their mothers and their fathers. So when I found out that I'm the son of a Catholic priest. I recognized that there was a notable absence of any kind of recognition of this issue or a place that they could go. So I I, I thought about constructing some sort of a, a response to it. And the response that I constructed was theological in nature and pragmatically based and mental health focused. The reason of the theological element is because that's the language of the church, so um, I honestly, I was as surprised as everyone else. I thought I'd just put up a website and everyone would forget about it, but here we are, seven years later, still talking about it, which is great and happy. But it coping has so, as a self help mental health initiative, coping has been used by over 120,000 people. Now,
0: there's a couple of layers to this in that you've uh, yourself experienced as a psychotherapist, you find yourself in Manuth studying theology, and then you find out at that point. That you are in fact the son of a priest.
1: Yeah the apple didn't fall far from the tree that's for sure. I always felt compelled to religion, to faith, to the church and like my friends were as baffled as me to be honest because they were going to concerts and things like this. I was setting off on pilgrimages and I just felt a natural happiness in celebrating faith and everything about Catholicism really made sense to me. I didn't know and of course that would be part of who I am as a person. It's not all because I'm the son of a Catholic priest. But then when I found out, I put everything together in my head and I really had an ah moment. It was a, a real aha moment. I, I connected all, the, all the, the nurture. I look back to my childhood and when I was a kid, I was only maybe an infant or two or something like that. And I actually would crawl up into the altar during the weekday masses when there's very little people there. And I sat behind the altar where my father was. I had to be near him. And then he would go on his calls and he'd go on, you know, he'd be visiting people. And, he, and after weekends, when I would spend time with him, he'd go over and say maths and I'd sit in the front seat. So I grew up um, and <clears throat> my experience of Catholicism was deeply personal. And my experience of priesthood was one of, uh, I suppose, there was, there was a beauty there. There was, um, there was a kindness there. So it made sense that I would, would end up in Manuth. I studied languages. And then I found myself on the road to go there and I spent three years there. And I did a year in Spain in the Royal English College. And then I did a master's in matterday DCU. So my, and it was after all of this that I discovered my, uh, my who my father was.
0: But you did know him he, he, and you were known <clears throat> to him. So uh, what was that relationship?
1: Uh, JJ was my godfather. So of course he appreciated better than anyone probably back in the 80s and 90s. There wasn't much he could do or maybe it was difficult uh for him to come out and acknowledge he, he was a father he had maybe concerns i i don't know i'm, I'm i i can't speak for the man but i i did spend as much time as i could with him so most weekends i would have spent at his house uh, i had my own room we we'd like our favorite tv show was macgyver we'd watch macgyver he'd make dinner we just talk about school so it was tremendously mundane just he had a collar that was the only difference, um, so everything that your listeners do with their kids, I did with him. And to be honest, like, like everything else in Ireland, it was the worst kept secret ever, because I was known as Father Doyle's Gossam, even though you didn't say it. And I kind of just accepted it as it was, and then when he died, I was devastated. And there wasn't time to have that conversation. He died quite quickly. He was diagnosed in January. He was, he was dead on the 4th of June, um, so it was quite abrupt.
0: You have his name.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Right, yeah, Vincent Doyle, yeah. I think it's important to say who you are. I mean, if people listening maybe don't like the fact that I'm quite open about being the son of the priest, or a priest, they're absolutely entitled not to like it, just as I'm entitled to like it.
0: Were you able to get any additional insight from your Uh, mother?
1: Well, that's a part of my life where we have a, a protagonist who's alive. And I never really go down that road. Um, I only ever speak about me and my dad because as a coping founder, I don't want to give them, because there are children of priests listening to this and I don't want to give them the message that you either A, keep quiet and say nothing or B, you go public on national TV or radio and you tell everything. So uh, there can be a middle ground where you can say, look, this man was my father. I loved him. Okay, it might be ideal, but that's the world we live in. and we're all going to move on. And So I, I... I don't speak about anybody else except me and my dad, you know?
0: You approached the church once this process came uh, you know, came, came out for you, um, and there might be an expectation of people listening that you would have got some resistance to it, but you describe in the book uh, the meetings both with the papal nuncio and mm-hmm. with Archbishop Dermot Martin, mm-hmm. and they seem extremely positive experiences. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, I suppose going in I, I would have had a level of anger and irritation that children were priests, you know, and I was I'd be the first to admit I was expecting a battle, and I was sadly disappointed. It was like Archbishop Emeritus Jim McMartin said to me, You know, we, we do this correctly, we'll do this right. And the Archbishop Charles Brown, currently in the Philippines, the nuncio, he was more than hospitable. I'm, I'm not here to try and defend the church or, or the opposite, but the fact of the matter is, they face up to this with dignity and truth. And even the Vatican themselves, in my presence just before COVID, were commending the Irish Catholic bishops for the strength of character, the strength of theology, the the level of pastoral care that they put into place. Without the Irish Catholic bishops, this whole thing would have fallen apart.
0: OK, so this then uh, gives leads us to, to some of the definitions that, that I'd like to explore, uh, explore a little bit more. One is to get you to expand a little bit on the idea of the moral argument, because this is, seems to be the, the big challenge for, for anybody who finds themselves in this relationship.
1: Correct. Yeah, the moral argument. I've so in our fathers. I've, I've created a number of simple terms to try and navigate this world because there aren't. There is no terminology. There was none until now. So the moral argument really looks at the idea that a priest or religious must always leave ministry having fathered a child, and it's kind of wrapped up. In, it has an undertone of maybe something romantic. It's, it's almost Kathleen and Heathcliff, Wuthering Heights type of thing, whereupon the priest can leave and, and, and go and take care of his child is a phrase I've seen dozens of times. But the question we ask to the church is how? How does a middle-aged priest in Colombia with a four-year-old daughter who's not married to the mother and he is suspended from priesthood or what they call it, a period of reflection. What's he going to do, like become a plumber? You know it's not practical, so you have to like, like. Our blessed Lord, if if he was anything, he was a pragmatist, and, and so was Saint Joseph, in the sense that he like, he was a carpenter. He took care of his child. God recognized this kid's gonna need a, a dad who has a job. So God is of course holy and blessed, but he's also intelligent and he's smart, and he recognizes the nuances. The church kind of whitewashed over that, and are still are doing it, and it's grossly unfair to expect a child to start his or her life. With a father who may be separated from the mother or not married or whatever who has no job and had to give up probably the love of his life for his uh, for another love of his life his first child because the priest you know would hold the priesthood very personally so examine the moral argument and it just it's it's a cancerous ideology if you apply it in every case as the automatic default response and it's the moral argument which says you have to leave the priesthood that's what's driving the silence. That's what's driving the silence. These men are, they're not all bad men or terrible men. Some of them just don't know what to do. They're ill-equipped and they have to keep quiet uh, in order to provide for their child. And that's not fair.
0: Vincent, you are on a process. I'm imagining this engages a great deal of your time. Is your job done, nearly done, half done?
1: So there's two ways of approaching this. You can, you can keep bandaging the wound of the psychological wound that affects the child, you can keep going with the advocacy. You can keep um, promoting the natural rights of the child. But then behind all that is a system that ignores these children. So in our fathers, I speak about very probati. I think a lot of people who are waiting for my book were waiting for me to be to to say celibacy should go. One of the lines in the book I say is this. If, if the goodness of that needs to be afforded to the children of the ordained is contingent upon the abolition of celibacy, I fear these children may starve. So what is celibacy? Celibacy means unmarried. And as society knows today, uh, you can be unmarried and be a fine parent. Marriage doesn't make you a good parent. <clears throat> so it's the same for priests. So the Vatican have allowed a situation whereupon a Latin Rite priest who is celibate can recommit to chastity, and openly acknowledge his child, and now openly been the key word there, and he can know his child, etc. That's part of the Vatican guidance. That's part one. The, the next part is married clergy, and there's no getting away from that. Not just because there's a lack of good priests, but there's a lack of good fathers who are priests. That, that's why I see very Prabhati as a, an absolute necessity.
0: Vincent Doyle, thank you for joining us on the Leap of Faith. Thank you. And you'll find details of Vincent's new book, Our Fathers, on our website. That's at rte.ie forward slash leap. Next this evening, one of the Catholic Church's most prominent nuns has said that the push for women's ordination points to a more profound question that needs to be asked and stresses a need to separate ordained ministry from decision-making. Sister Patricia Murray, Executive Secretary of the Women's International Union of Superiors-General, spoke at an online webinar organized by the Irish Embassy to the Holy See on St. Bridget's Day earlier this month. Sister Pat joins me now from our office in Rome. Sister Pat, welcome to The Leap of Faith. Um, on a recent webinar, you were addressing the idea uh, of the role of women in the church. And from your position where you are in Rome, what changes have you noticed happening more recently?
2: Uh, I've noticed quite a deal of change, particularly over the last seven years during the pontificate of of Pope Francis, because more and more you see women being appointed to roles uh, in various departments or what are called dicasteries here in Rome. But also women are being appointed to councils and as consultors. Uh, they are members of uh, various task forces that have been set up. For example, a new task force has been established in the context of COVID and there are many both lay women and uh, religious women sisters who are members of that uh, task force. Yesterday we had uh, Um, a press conference here at the International Union of Superiors General, a press conference for Sister Nathalie Beccar, who's a French religious sister. She's a Zavarian sister, um, who has a background in marketing. It's very interesting. That was her first uh, area of expertise. Um, Also, uh, her order is within the Ignatian tradition, so discernment is very much part of uh, her life. Um, And she's been appointed an undersecretary for the office that looks after synods. And uh, in that position, she'll have a vote at the synod. That also leads me to say that that in the last few synods, there has been an increasing number of women, again, both lay and religious women attending. So in lots of various uh, aspects of the institutional church, more and more you see the presence of women. And of course, at some
0: point, it would be nice to be able to have this conversation without us looking for the exception, for the novelty, for the idea that isn't it wonderful that this situation has occurred. What is, there's still one final phase, I suppose, in, in that search for equality, and that is the idea of ordination.
2: Where, where does that sit? Yes, but you see, you have to look at that word equality. Uh, I'm not sure that equality means everybody doing the same thing to be equal. I think it's about parity of esteem so that there is esteem for the different ministries in the church and in the world. And, you know, from my position here in Rome, I'm looking at women all over the world and their role within the church. And I think in my uh, presentation, I I actually pointed out the fact that most, the majority of women now are in the global south or the global east, um, where they're playing an enormously important role in their local church. Um, And often in some places, it's the religious sister who actually is the focal point of the church of the local church and the local community um, or a group of lay, lay women or lay men and women who together are nurturing the life of the community. So I think what we're looking at is uh, we often look at it through our own lens. Um, you know, the experience we have in the parts of the world we've lived in and what has been historically our experience of church. But the experience of church varies throughout the world. So I think we we have to remember that and the different roles that are played. And I keep looking at the ministries, you know, the the pastoral care ministries, the ministries of teaching, of healing, of accompanying, um, of the theological ministry, the ministry of explaining scripture, catechetics, evangelization. These are all extremely important ministries in the church. And interestingly, Pope Francis now, in his reform of the Curia or of the institution of Church, is putting the whole question of evangelization—in other words, of, of um, explaining the mission of Jesus, of uh, telling people the good news of the Gospel—putting that front and center of the, the new structure here in the Vatican. So I, I think there are an, uh, there's a lot of different shifts taking place in terms of what's key and what's important.
0: Um, but the, the, the idea we're looking at still is thus far, but no further when it comes to the sacraments. So if you, you know, it, it's I'm thinking of the analogy of somebody on an airplane where, you know, there's a curtain halfway up the cabin and beyond that cabin is first class.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I'm i not sure I see it that way. I, I see it in a, in a sense that uh, when you're looking at different, I think we, it, within the church, the ministry of priesthood has got raised up because so many of the other ministries were, in a sense, were focused within the, that person, ministries that could be shared. And we're beginning to see that uh, in, in as the church lives out its life. Um, so I think Yes, the priest and ordination has a role and an important role in bringing the sacraments. But, for example, other sacraments can be administered uh, by by lay people. And more and more, for example, when uh, we're dealing, as we are at this very sad time of losing people in debt uh, to COVID, uh, you have lay people and religious who are presiding over the funeral rites of of uh, the last moments of people, accompany people at their moments of death and dying, uh, baptizing in parts of the world where there is where there is no priest. So uh, in the sacrament of marriage, it's actually the two people who marry one another, that the priest is the person who presides over their, their mutual declaration of love for one another. So I think as we understand uh, the church and, and as we have a, better grasp theologically of what's happening, we'll see that there is a sharing, as the people of God, as Vatican II said, this was the way that we needed to proceed into the future. Um, And yes, we've had the question of looking at the the role of uh, women deacons, for example, because the diaconate was an important role in the early church. And the deacon was actually the person who did the works of mercy, uh, who supported the priest, in the sense who financially I think gave the priest his wages. Um, so that the diaconate, the bishop worked with the priest and the deacon. And they they were part of, of the, the kind of structure of the early church. Now we're looking at their diaconate is the reaching out to meet the, the practical needs of people. Um, and I think now we're seeing uh, the, those ministries which are so needed in our world today. I think, of the Ministry of Spiritual Direction, Spiritual Accompaniment. You know, they can't all be focused in one person. And I think what we have to do is raise them up and appreciate them.
0: Sister Patricia Murray, thank you for joining us on The Leap of Faith.
2: Thank you very much. And uh, I wish all your listeners uh, a happy St. Valentine's Day.
0: Finally this evening, as many will celebrate St. Valentine's Day on Sunday around the world and here in Ireland, Lunar New Year festivities are also underway. In Chinese, Singaporean, Indonesian, Malaysian and Korean homes, the arrival of the Year of the Ox is being celebrated, albeit in a much more low-key way this year. In Dublin tonight, one family is doing just that. It's 40 years since Suni DeLap left Korea and began her life in this country. During these past four decades, she's had a career as a social worker and is now the principal of the Korean School in Dublin, a Saturday school for Korean children and children with a Korean-speaking parent. Suni joins me from her family home on Zoom this evening. Suni, welcome to the programme. Say, uh, hey, back to Cho.
3: Thank you very much.
0: And of course, that is a Happy New Year, the Lunar New Year, which is not only celebrated in China and Vietnam, but also in Korea.
3: Well, uh, uh, first of all, I'm glad you mentioned it. it's actually a Lunar New Year because um, for so long I've been kind of bothered by this Chinese New Year, you know. Obviously, China is a big country, and China is one of those countries that they celebrate. I suppose it's like Vietnam and Singapore, Korea, and um, several other countries in Southeast Asia would celebrate um, Lunar New Year. Did you know that um, Easter is a lunar calendar?
0: That's why it changes every year.
3: Yes, you know, it's the... It's the first weekend after the equinox, so it's never going to be earlier than 21st of March. So this lunar calendar seems to be more pervasive than we think, you know.
0: We joke in Ireland about asking people what they have for breakfast, but I'm going to ask you, what do you have for breakfast on New Year's Day, the Lunar New Year's Day?
3: Well, today, first of all, the first thing I did was Zooming with my family in Korea. In Korea... The, our um, ceremony to, to our ancestor happens in the morning. All the food that you prepare for the ancestor, actually, as you know, you prepare it for yourself, you know. <laughs> so that happens in the morning. So breakfast is the, uh, the main food. And traditionally, we make um, rice sausage. It's a long sausage. It's with the rice, and you slice it and make a kind of, with a beef broth, you make a soup and the kind of, everything has implication, you know, the big, long, white um, rice sausage. It's not sausage, but I call it sausage because of the shape means that they want you to have a long, happy life. And then there's a little bit of greenery goes in, but that's for the harmony. And, you know, so every little ingredient has a, has an interpretation and meanings. So the every household have this particular soup, rice sausage, rice, uh, I don't know, I, 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 it's called dakok. So uh, by this time, uh, people are just uh, a little bit kind of over at and over indulged, and they just are sitting in front of Netflix and uh, have a a quiet time and in a way glad that that the day is over because you invest so much it's a bit like Christmas day in the evening here you know you watch the garnet wind and just uh, take it easy so this is uh, what's happening.
0: What is the uh, spiritual and cultural significance of the Lunar New Year?
3: Well, in Korea, I think each country um, has different way of celebrating. But in Korea, um, it is kind of, of course, it's a happy day, but it's much more reflective day because it's a day that we thanks to our ancestors for the life that they gave us and their sacrifice that they have done for us. So I mean, I always have a habit of kind of making interpretation of cultural ritual. But I mean, now I'm aging and I, of course, when I'm dead, I would like to be remembered, you know, so it's it's good to be remembered.
0: What is the significance then and the role that is given to the, the older person in the Korean family?
3: I suppose, um, you know, you... You lived long and you've worked hard for the family, so you are honored. And um, it, uh, the, the the respect comes with the responsibility. So one responsibility you have on New Year's Day is when you get an official bow, which means they want you to have a very good year, the next, you know, this year, the hoping for best year and healthy year and prosperous year. You have to, well, not have to, but you give uh, money uh, to your grandchildren or children. And, uh, you know, the last week would have been very busy time for bank because people go and try to get a very crispy new notes, you know, because they want to kind of give a little bit of care. You know, it's not kind of crunched, but it's a fresh new money. And you smell, the new smell of new money is fantastic. And they don't just give you, they don't just throw it. They put it in nice envelope. And I always remember my mother save whole year for this present for the grandchildren on New Year's Day. So 12 uh, grandchildren, if you give hundred euro, that's, you know, 12. So it's a one of those kind of budgeted uh, expenditure <laughs> <laughs> every year
0: <laughs> Well Suni wish you and your family a very happy Spring Festival and Lunar New Year and thank you for joining us on the programme
3: Thank you so much Happy New Year
0: And that's our Leap of Faith for this week from our producer Sheila O'Callaghan Broadcast Coordinator Charlotte Holland and me Michael Cummins All the best for the Lunar New Year and St. Valentine's Day Good night